Um, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to continue our series studying Abraham. We're going to be in Genesis, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 15 today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles spread around under the chairs, and you can grab one of those Bibles. We'll be on page 10, and I think our lights need to be adjusted. I think it's a little dark for people looking at Bibles. feels different than normal when I'm preaching. Okay, thank you. Um, so we'll be in Genesis chapter 15. We're in this series called Father Abraham. Looking at Genesis 12 through 22, we have been trying to lay a foundation to get ourselves ready to look at Romans in the fall. So we're going to be studying Romans in the fall. In Romans, Paul pulls a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight and a lot of the foundation that God's already laid from Abraham and from what God was doing with Abraham in Genesis. We're told that we are also sons of Abraham, not by blood, not by where we grew up, but by adoption, by faith, because we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. We are people that need to be saved by God, that need God to help us, that need to trust in the promises of God, just like Abraham was. And so we're also sons and daughters of Abraham. So we have a lot to learn from him. This week we're calling it ancient grace, ancient grace. C.S. Lewis talks about this idea called chronological snobbery. Have y'all ever heard of this term before? Chronological snobbery is something most of us in the 21st century are guilty of, and what, what it is is we tend to think that we are this advanced civilization that knows way more than ancient people. And so we're going to be challenged today that we have something really deep and profound and grace-filled to learn from the past, to learn from these ancient, strange, foreign things that God was doing back in Genesis thousands of years ago. So I just want to acknowledge I, like you, have this problem with chronological snobbery, and we want to ask God to help us uh, to set that aside for a minute and try to learn and try to listen from this ancient grace that God gave us in this ancient and strange story. So I'm going to read from Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. I'm going to stop there. That's where it starts to get weird for us, right? We've got some... Cultural distance, we don't always have these conversations with God where we then go and start cutting up animals. But as I said, there's some profound, deep, rich grace for us to learn from this ancient story. Also, for those of you that saw me using glasses the last few weeks, I went ahead and cheated and bought a large print Bible, so I just couldn't stand it anymore. It was, driving, it was too distracting for me, so anyway, um, I'm going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to help us to, to hear what he has to say for us from these ancient stories. God, we pray that you would help us. We, we just admit that we often think that we're smart because we have iPhones and new technology. Uh, but God, you, you were before us. 
you'll be after us. We're just a blip on the radar of history. We pray that you'd help us to be wise. You'd help us to learn. You'd help us to set aside our preconceived notions and listen. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and our minds. God, help us to consider um, that you might be the one that can provide what we're missing. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was thinking of this concept of chronological snobbery, I was uh, thinking about this thing that I saw often in high school, and you might have seen this when you were in high school, or maybe you still see it today. I mean, I still I think it happens all the time in different people groups. But I would have these friends uh, that were very independent-minded people. Uh, they really were concerned about being authentic, being true to themselves, uh, being independent thinkers, being kind of smarter than everybody else. They didn't want to just follow the herd, you know? Um, so these were the free thinkers, the nonconformists, if you will. Um, and so a nonconformist says, I'm not going to just go along with the crowd and do what everybody else does. I'm going to be smarter than that. I'm going to do my own thing. The irony to me, though, was when I was in high school, the kids that thought that way um, all spoke the same kind of phrases. They all listened to the same bands, and they all wore the same outfits. Do, do you, have you ever seen this happen? So, so there's this irony where through uh, trying to be nonconformists, they were actually conforming to this little tribe. We're all the nonconformists, and we all look, think, act, dress, and walk the same way. And, and so I just, again, it's another illustration for us to realize we can swing from this idea to that idea, and we need to pause, and we need to be humble, and we need to say, God, what do you want me to learn? Because we can often, in our culture, think, yeah, there's nothing for me to learn from those old people or those old books or those old stories, but there's really, there's deep and beautiful stuff here. C.S. Lewis talked about how he struggled with that in his own walk. If you've ever heard of him, he's a famous writer from uh, the, kind of the mid to the end of the 20th century, and C.S. Lewis was a great defender of the Christian faith. And one of the reasons he was such a good defender of the Christian faith is because he came to it after having attacked it for many years. So an intellectual person, a literature professor, a great thinker, who saw the Christian faith as unbelievable and then came to a point of then believing it. And he writes this about chronological snobbery in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says, in talking about just uh, the things he saw in the Bible and religion, he said, here were gods, spirits, afterlife, and preexistence, initiates and occult knowledge, meditation. Why, damn it, it's medieval, he said. And that was him, right? I didn't say that. He said, why, damn it, it's medieval, I exclaimed, for I still had all the chronological snobbery of my period and used the names of earlier periods as a term of abuse. So when he calls it medieval, that's an insult, right? Because we all know we're smarter than ancient people. But he said what he came to learn is that we've always got things to learn from other time periods. Now, we don't want to swing the other direction and say, therefore, everything old is always right. Right? We, don't, we don't want to swing to that side. We just want to be discerning people that recognize uh, the air that we breathe, the water we swim in. One of the ways that sociologists describe it is this. They call it a plausibility structure. Right? So we all have a, a world in which we live mentally where we say, this is what can be and cannot be. And if something tries to come in that I don't think can exist, I'm just going to bounce it right out and I'm not even going to pay attention to it. So we need to have enough humility to recognize, you know what, sometimes there are good and beautiful things from today that I need to learn, and sometimes there are deep and good and beautiful things from the ancient, ancient past that I need to learn. So the first thing that we're going to learn as we look through this story of ancient grace is that grace meets us where we are. Grace meets us where we are. We've said again and again that Abraham, in many ways, is just like you and me. 
He's a struggler. He's a sojourner. You know, he's on this journey trying to follow God, but he doesn't really have all the answers. He, he knows he can trust God, but he doesn't quite understand what God is up to. And what I want you to see in this passage is that grace, God's kindness to us that we don't deserve, meets us right where we are, meets us in the everyday struggle that we're living through just like Abram lived through. So, so let's look at verse 1. Again, we'll look at verses 1 through 5, and we see this graciousness that God has towards Abraham in his struggle and his doubt. It says in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so this language specifically of the word of the Lord coming to someone in a vision is prophet language. So we need to kind of perk up and pay attention. Again, this is an ancient thing. We, we're not used to the terminology of prophets. Most of us don't claim to be prophets or listen to prophets. But here, this is the kind of language from that time where it says, God is revealing something to humanity here. He's using Abram as a prophet. So he reveals this to him, comes to him in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And this language is picking up from language that Melchizedek, the weird prophet from the last chapter, used already. So that guy said that God is your deliverer. And it's the same Hebrew word, deliverer. It's kind of like a noun verb switch, but the same basic root when he talks about being your shield, right? Protector, shield, deliverer. And so God is saying, just like Melchizedek said in that last chapter, it's true. Now he's revealing it directly to Abram. I really am your deliverer. I really am your shield, Abram. You can trust me. And he says, I am your reward. The reward language was used to talk about the spoils of war in the last chapter. Now it's being applied to God himself. So the idea is it's not just the money and things we have in life, but it's God himself. He's our true reward. And that's what he's telling Abram. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And so what I want you to see here, this is a really important application, is that Abram has faith. Matter of fact, Romans 4 even says he didn't waver in his faith, which is a little confusing the language because we see Abram doing stupid stuff throughout Genesis, right? But to some degree, he, he trusted God. He had faith. He didn't, he didn't lose his faith, but there's still a kind of doubt here. And I want you to understand that there's a kind of doubt that exists alongside our faith. And those words are used in a lot of different ways throughout Scripture. So I'm going to kind of summarize by saying it this way. You can trust that God is good and he will provide for you, but you can still wonder why it doesn't seem to be going right right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? And when you have those questions, when you have those doubts or those struggles or whatever you want to call those, the appropriate thing to do is to take it to God. And so grace meets you right where you are, just like grace met Abram right where he is. Abram says, God, I, I see that I can trust you. I see that you are my reward, but you don't seem to be doing what you promised to do. God has given us salvation in Jesus Christ. That frees us from the penalty of sin and death. That sets us free so that we don't need to fear death any longer. But as we live our daily life, sometimes we wonder, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Because it looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. My life's not turning out the way I thought it should be. I'm sick. People I love are sick. Our relationships are broken. I'm hurting. I can't seem to love you as consistently as I want to. And God, what's going on? And I want to encourage you to, to speak that to God just like Abram did. That doesn't mean you don't have faith. It doesn't mean you've turned your back on God just because you have some questions. When you have those questions, it's a really important application point. Don't 
run and hide from God until you have all your questions answered. Bring your questions to God. That is a huge part of what prayer actually is. Prayer is interceding and asking for things for other people. It's praising, but it's also saying, God, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're doing. And we have this beautiful example in the Psalms where we have most of the Psalms written by David, this great warrior with PTSD, continually wrestling with God. God, what are you doing? What's up? When are you going to actually save me like you said you were going to do? That's a huge application point for us. We, we need to be that same kind of people. We need to bring our questions to God. And so here's God's answer. Here's his grace that he brings to Abram right where he is. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Talking about his head servant, Eleazar. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abram's saying, okay, I've made a promise to you. You're going to have a son. It's going to be not a son from the typical way through the flesh, but it's going to be a miracle child, a child of promise. And and Romans and Galatians kind of unpacks that a lot for us. But he's saying, look up at the stars. Look up at the stars. I I grabbed a picture for you because I know a lot of you are city folk and you've probably never seen them before. So sometimes... Out in the country, when you're not in a city, you look up at the sky and there are these glowing dots. In the sky. Have you, any of you ever seen these kids? Have you seen these before? You ever gone to visit grandma and grandpa out in the country and seen the stars? They're gorgeous, right? They're, they're incredible. And, and there's just this thing that comes over us when we go outside and look at the stars. Even if we don't know this, this promise that God made, there's still this just recognition. I'm small, God's big, maybe everything's going to be okay that, that can come over us when we look up at the stars. Here we have a specific promise from God, where, where God meets Abram right where he is, and he says, I'm going to give you just this everyday reality of the universe that I've created, and you can look up at the sky at night, you can see all the sparkling stars, and you can remember that even when it feels like I'm not doing anything, I'm saving the world. There are going to be this many people, innumerable, that I've saved and brought to myself and that I've transformed because of my grace and what I'm doing in the world. So again, when we doubt, when we question, first of all, we can bring those questions, those problems to God in prayer, but we can also, I mean, just walk outside and look up at the stars and recognize God is still at work. Even though all of creation is groaning, I'm longing to see this thing finished that God has promised he will do, he is at work. He's given me this visual reminder to tell me, yes, God is still at work. God is still saving people. God is still changing the world this beautiful gift that he gave, not just to Abram, but he gives it to us as well. When we go outside, again, you know, I joke, it's hard to see in the city, but if you go outside in the country for sure, you can see the same stars that Abram looked up and saw. You can see that same gift, that promise, that grace, again, that grace that meets us right where we are in this broken world where we're struggling to hold on to faith and saying, God, are you really, are you really gonna do it? Are you really gonna do what you said you'd do? You said you're saving the world? You said you're bringing a people to yourself. We can look up at the stars and be reminded, yes, God is, God is still gracious. So when you struggle, just like when Abram struggles, don't run the other way and try to fix yourself first, but bring your struggles to God. And there's a great verse in Philippians 4, 6 through 7 that I would encourage you to memorize. This is a great discipline in the Christian life. So not only does God give us the stars to look at to remind us of his goodness, but he also gives us the specifics of his word in Scripture. And a really important discipline that I would encourage you to try 
is memorizing Scripture. And here's a little bit of Scripture that's really good. It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything. And I've got to explain that for a second. It doesn't mean don't begin to be anxious, right? Because then, then we're all messed up already, right? It means don't continue to be anxious. So just the way Greek grammar is constructed, any present tense verb has an ongoing aspect to it. So it's saying don't continue to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, asking by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, submit your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it's a promise that God gives us. And in the midst of our anxiety, don't stay there. Take your anxiousness to God. Don't remain anxious. Present your request to God. Tell him, God, I, don't, I don't understand what you're doing. What are you up to? Going and looking at the stars helps, but talking to him is really important as well. And scriptures like Philippians 4, 6, and 7 can remind us of that. We can take those with us. We can memorize that. That can help us as we're struggling. So huge application. Grace meets you where you are. You can talk to him about your struggles. God will come to you. He'll encourage you, right? Where you are. The next thing I want us to see is that grace is received by trust. And this is just verse 6 I want us to focus in on. Um, this is the verse that gets repeated and hammered and uh, rediscussed throughout the New Testament, particularly in Romans and Galatians, but in other places as well. And so verse 6 says this. Verse 6, he says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this is Abram believed or trusted or had faith in God. So three ways to translate that word, belief, faith, trust. Abram trusted God, and God counted that trust to Abram as righteousness. So grace is received by trust. God's kindness to us where he says, I know you're not really righteous, but I'm going to consider you righteous in Jesus. I'm going to consider you acceptable. I'm going to consider you beautiful. I, I'm going to see you through what Jesus has accomplished for you as acceptable and as beautiful as my very own son. And so we now know more of the details, right? In, in Romans and Galatians, Paul tells us that this has really worked out in Jesus himself. So that none of us, none of us are righteous. We've all failed to be as good or as beautiful or as loving or as kind as we're meant to be. But Jesus took the punishment for our sin on the cross. And so our sins are placed on Jesus, and Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to us. And so by faith, we're also considered righteous, just like Abram. Abram didn't have all the details of how it was going to work, but Abram just trusted God. All right, God, I trust you that you're going to take care of me. And God saw Abram as righteous. So that grace that God gives us, that kindness that we don't deserve, of being considered righteous in God's eyes. That's something we just receive by trust, by faith. I, I often prefer the word trust to the word believe or to the word faith because I think in our modern day and time, this is again kind of plausibility structure stuff, kind of how we see the world, we tend to think of faith and we tend to think of belief as just mental assent, as just that's an idea I think is true. You know, and it's just kind of an abstract mental idea instead of making it relational. So I, I prefer to use the word trust all three words really mean the same thing, but the idea is that we are depending on God. We're trusting, we're believing that he's good and that he provides for us and that he loves us. And so the grace that God offers to us is received with open hands of faith, of trust, saying, okay, God, I love you. I believe 
that you love me, that you're taking care of me. So in uh, Romans 4, Paul describes it this way. He's talking about this verse, and he says in Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is setting up that there's two systems that you can live by. You can either live by the system of working to impress God or trusting that God is impressed with you through Jesus. You can either work punching the time clock to earn your relationship with God or receive it by trust, this grace that God gives you for free. I have an illustration of this. Uh, This is a time clock. Again, another thing that probably a lot of you have never seen before, um, but this is an, an ancient tool that people used at businesses. And what you would do is when, when I would go into my job, I would have my name on the top of the card, and when I would report in to begin my work, I would push the card into the machine, and it would stamp with the time that I'd come in to start working. And then when I would finish my shift, I would push the card back in, and it would stamp the time I ended work. And then that card, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, could be delivered to the person that writes the checks, and they could give me the wages that I had earned by the hours that I'd put in. And, and the Bible again and again tells us, you shouldn't consider your relationship with God like working a time clock. It's a very dangerous place to be. That gets you in big trouble. Jesus used all kinds of different parables to illustrate this. One famous parable he uses is the the workers uh, in the field parable in Matthew chapter 20. Workers in the field parable in Matthew chapter 20, this master hires some people to work in the field at the beginning of the day. And then at the middle of the day, he goes and he hires more people to work in the field. So those people work less than the ones he, worked, he hired in the morning, right? And then he hires some people at the very end of the day, and they work barely any time at all. And the master then pays all the workers the same. And how do you think the workers felt that had worked all day? They were frustrated by that, right? And Jesus was purposefully needling those of us that are religious do-gooders. And he was saying, the master didn't owe work to any of these people. It's all grace, he, he paid the one that worked all day a fair wage. He, he paid the, the one that worked uh, less, more than they deserved. He paid the one that worked an hour, more than they deserved. But it's all grace. And Jesus was trying to explain and show to those of us that think we're earning things with God, God doesn't owe us anything. We're all in debt. And so it reminds us that we can get ourselves into big trouble when we relate to God with a time clock because none of us are really that good. Even those of us that are we think are better than our neighbors, we haven't really earned it either. None of us have earned it. So these are two different ways I think we refuse to receive grace's trust, two different directions our hearts go in. So just track with me for a minute and we'll we'll move on to the next point. One way is by becoming kind of uh, religious and judgmental. That's one way that we think we've earned what we deserve and other people haven't. We become religious and judgmental. The, The other way we go where we're not receiving grace by faith or by trust is we become kind of uh, this person that's living with anti-religious denial, right? So there's this religious judgmentalism and this anti-religious denial. Just a quick definition to how I think this works out. Religious judgmentalism is thinking that you've clocked more and better hours than others. And because of that, you're never really able to love others generously because you don't believe that generosity has been shown to you. You believe that God is just paying you back with what you've earned, and so you're going to start treating people that way too. 
problem is that the kinks in the human soul makes us have a hard time recognizing our own failures. And if we're religious and judgmental, we just tend to recognize our victories and we lose our humility and we treat others with judgment and we treat ourselves with praise and we cease to be able to be gracious to other people. And it fails. Again, the God of the universe is so holy, there's no way you could work enough hours to make up for your debt. You just can't do it. The other direction we go um, is we recognize how silly that is, right? So some of you in this room, you're wise, you're on to us religious people, and you see how fake we really are. And you're like, I'm not going to play that game. And so you're in this anti-religious denial where you say, I'm not going to go punch my time clock at that church or that religious institution. I'm going to follow my own heart, right? And so this is what that looks like, anti-religious denial. You think you are too free to live by the time clock, but you keep this secret journal by your bedside where you're writing down all the smart, free, authentic decisions you've ever made. So really, you're, te- you're keeping a time clock too. You're just not doing it at a religious institution. You're following your own heart. You're being a romantic. You're saying, I'm true to myself, but that in itself is another way of trying to earn salvation. You're saying these, these judgmental religious people are fake, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just be truly authentic, but... The question is, is either path really earning us a righteousness? The message of the gospel is a message we all know to be authentically true, and that's none of us are as gracious and as kind and as generous and as loving and as just as we desire to be. None of us measure up. And the answer that God gives us is, trust me, receive the grace I have for you. And that's what Abram learned. He trusted God, and God called that righteousness. God said, I will see you as good and acceptable. I will love you. I'll adopt you into my family. The the last section shows us now that grace is God-centered. I think this is the most foreign part of the story. This is the most ancient part of the story. Um, It's the most foreign to the way we live because of some ancient uh, covenant treaty language here. And so in this, we'll see that really grace is a God-centered thing that God initiates and God empowers for us but it's going to be spoken in a language that we struggle to understand because it's not how we live our everyday life. And so the format is ancient Near Eastern covenant language. And there's all kinds of archaeology and research that's been done to show that this is how people talked in the ancient world. You hear it sometimes in in modern language where I notice this kind of ancient Middle Eastern king language used is in rap music. Um, In rap music, often uh, the artist will proclaim his greatness up front And then he'll stipulate uh, the allegiance that's owed to him because of his greatness. And this is the way Middle Eastern kings spoke. This This was their treaties. There's all kind of ancient treaties that echo the same kind of language. And you know what's amazing is we have to check our our modern understanding to hear this ancient grace. But the irony is that God was speaking their language, right? He he came to them and he spoke in a language they understood. He spoke the treaty language, the covenant language of that day and time. So covenant, just to define it a little bit for us. A covenant simply means a treaty or contract or an agreement between two parties that has formal stipulations, right? It has maybe consequences or ceremonies that formalize and harden it. So the best modern understand of covenant, uh, modern understanding of covenant today would be marriage, right? So in a marriage, you make vows, you make promises, and then uh, there's this kind of formalization of it there. So here we've got the unfolding of an ancient treaty starting in verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. 
to possess. So that's the normal preamble of an ancient treaty. And then in verse 8, Abram, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then the, the treaty starts to unfold. Verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram, he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them uh, each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So again, this is very weird and foreign to us, but this was just standard treaty language. This is how people made covenants. Uh, A greater party would talk to the lesser party and say, I've done these great things for you. Like he just said, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees um, with uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. Now keep these stipulations. And then there would always be blood involved, right? So kind of gross for us, but they would cut animals apart and they would literally walk through the blood in the middle. There was like a path of blood between the torn apart animals. So it was this bloody mess, but it was to signify basically if you don't keep your side of the bargain, may it come upon you. The same thing that came upon these animals. If I don't keep my part of the bargain, may it come upon me as it has come upon these animals. May we become a bloody mess just like these animals that we are walking through their blood. So it was a very serious way of making the covenant agreement uh, weighty and profound and promising to keep it. And so this is where it gets really, really interesting. So we've got Abram setting it up, and in verse 12 it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and there, will be, they, there they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he's, again, making further promises. Interestingly enough, just like Jesus said, I'm saving you, but there are going to be hard times ahead. 400 years of difficulty and slavery, but I'm still going to finish my promises. Uh, It's not just going to end there. And so we have similar kinds of language from Jesus. He says, follow me, I'm going to save you, but there's going to be difficulty as well. But trust me, it's going to get better um, before it all ends. The other thing that's really interesting, which is not the the main emphasis of this text, but I just want to make this a side statement. He says, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's talking about this evil, wicked people in the land that God was going to command the Jews to kill. And that's a whole sermon in itself, right, explaining views of war and judgment. But I just want to be clear here that the Scripture never tells the Jewish people, go kill everybody because you're better than them. The Scripture never justifies racism or ethnic cleansing. It's always judicial. Now, you can still disagree with it. I know as modern people, we still have problems with the ancient text, but it's always judicial. It's always their iniquity makes them deserve judgment. And that's always the language that's used for when they came into the promised land and defeated through war these other people. So I just want to clarify that point, and I'd be glad to talk to you more about that. As I said, it's not really the main point of this text. So we're told that he was put into a deep sleep. This dreadful darkness comes over him. Basically, Abram's knocked out, right? Abram sets up the covenant, the bloody pieces, and he's knocked out. He's put to sleep. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, 
saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, river Euphrates, and on and on. So I have a picture here of what this probably looks like. Uh, This is just a pen and ink drawing of dead animals split apart, blood in the middle. Again, it's a bloody mess, kind of grosses us out as modern people. Uh, But this was the language of the day. And God comes to them in the language of the day. And what he does is he doesn't walk through the pieces with Abraham. What does he do? He knocks Abram out, and he walks through the pieces himself. We have this flaming torch, this smoking fire pot. God always manifests himself in the Old Testament as fire and as smoke. So we have this manifestation of the Lord passing through the bloody pieces himself. And he says, in the normal treaty and covenant language of the day, may it come upon me if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, right? But he knocks Abram out and puts him on the side. And he says, basically by doing that, may it come upon me if you don't fulfill your side of the covenant. Do you see that? Do you see that it's a one-sided covenant? That this is a God-centered covenant? So everything else he has done is in the typical language of the day. Everything else he has done is how covenants are always made. Except for this part. Abram doesn't walk through the bloody mess. Abram is knocked out and made impotent, and he's sleeping over on the side while God passes through. I hope you see kind of the obvious connections of this, this grace that is God-centered. And the idea is that we understand this to be fully fulfilled in Jesus. God has come to Abram and said, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm going to become a bloody mess. And we see that most clearly fulfilled in Jesus. Of course, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament and what Moses established points us to some of these things. It hints at this, right? The Passover and the sacrificial lamb. But here it is so clear. God says, I'm the one that's passing through the bloody mess. I'm the one that will be torn apart if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain. It's a God-centered bargain. God is the one saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all the, the penalty upon myself. In the cross, we have God made flesh who because we didn't keep up our end of the covenant that he made with creation and all humanity, because we haven't loved each other as we should, because we haven't reflected the image of God as God has asked us to do, we're all guilty. We all deserve death is what the scripture tells us. But God took that death upon himself. God became the bloody mess. God was torn apart at the cross when our sins were laid upon him. The the beautiful thing that we see on this time of the story, from this perspective, is that that wasn't the end of the story, right? It didn't just end there. It wasn't that just God is dead, now it's over, Jesus died on the cross, but Jesus conquered death. Hebrews tells us by the power of an indestructible life, Jesus rose from the dead. So not only did he take the penalty upon himself for this covenant that we haven't fulfilled, but he fulfilled it. He lived perfectly. He gives us his righteousness. He rose from the dead, promising that we'll also conquer sin and death. And so we have this beautiful promise that we see in the Old Testament, a God who does all the work, a a grace that is God-centered, a grace that is not something that that we provide, but it's a grace that God gives to us, that God provides for us. That's what makes grace, grace. It's that God does it. It's not that that we do it. It's that we come to him with the open hands of, of faith and trust, saying, God, will you make me new? And he promises to do it. He says, I'm going to be the one that gives you the power and the strength to fulfill this. 
And the more we understand this, the more we are, like Abram, sons and daughters of faith, trusting in this ancient grace that, that changes us, that transforms us so that we begin to live in new ways. We begin to learn from him and we begin to live differently in the real world. My question for you is, how is God calling you to live differently in this world? How is God calling you to now be generous and to love others because of the generosity and the kindness and the grace that God's shown to you in Christ? God has placed you in particular, particular places, neighborhoods, workplaces, this time throughout all history so that you can learn from this ancient grace and translate it into a modern setting so that you are the living demonstration of God's ancient grace that he's given to us in Christ. Let me pray for us. We'll respond together in worship and finish up our time together. God, we thank you that you love us and you give us this ancient grace. We thank you that it was most clearly demonstrated for us through Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, giving us new life through his resurrection power. Father, we pray that you would teach us what it looks like to translate that into the modern world. Some of this seems so distant and so far removed, but we know that we can trust you. We know your disposition of kindness towards us. We know that you love us. We thank you for that. We pray that you would renew us, you would transform us, that you would make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.